Hi, good afternoon. Uh, this is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner of the Lois Law Firm. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, today we're going to talk about something really exciting and something that's really going to be good for a lot of the employers and carriers in New York. And that is the first day uh, that the law change from April of 2017 actually goes into effect. We're calling this uh, a temp credit, uh, which is going to be uh, to the benefit of employers and carriers in New York. And today, I'm here to answer your questions about how this works. And today is the very first day. Uh, it could be applicable to cases. And so let's talk about how this is going to apply and what kind of cases this is going to affect. So today, our goal is to talk about the law change. I'm going to talk about which one of your cases are going to be affected by this change in the law. I'm going to give you some best practices for both employers and carriers as to how to make sure you're protecting your right to a credit. And I'm, of course, going to give you a little bit of how I expect opposing counsel is going to attempt to thwart this credit by exploiting a loophole that's been built into the law. All right, so thanks for joining me today. If this is your first time uh, joining me for a webinar, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, the Lois Law Firm puts these on every month, actually three days a month. We're putting on webinars for different subjects, so uh, thanks for joining us for this one. If you like this format, this is pretty much how they all go, uh, mainly a talking head. Sometimes I'm joined by a couple other people back here in our studio, uh, but it's totally live. Uh, we love to do these live. We think it makes them more fun. And as you can see up on your screen right now, it's an example of the little question and answer box that you have uh, hopefully in front of you right now. Type me your questions. I'm going to try to answer as many questions as I can at the end when I get through the eight or nine slides that I've prepared to sort of give us an overview. And I would love to answer questions from the crowd. We've got a big crowd today, and uh, this is uh, what makes this sort of fun and makes this sort of interesting both for me and for you. So please feel free to ask me your questions about how this credit could have possibly work. So uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk about the changes to the workers' compensation law. I promise I'm not going to bore you with the details. The law now says that after 130 weeks, uh, the court, the judge, shall consider any week going forward as a credit against the permanent residual disability award. Now, we're not talking about scheduled loss of uses, right? Because in those, you already get a credit for everything that you pay on temp. That's great, except for, of course, this bizarre loophole called protracted healing period, subject of a completely different webinar. What we're talking about is your classification cases. We're talking about your permanent partial disability cases. Uh, when In particular, we're talking about loss of wage earning capacity cases. In those cases, the law states now that the employer or carrier shall get a credit uh, for the uh, after 130 weeks. And essentially, what the what the court is uh, the law is saying is that the claimant really should be deemed to be at MMI after two and a half years of treatment. That's 130 weeks, two and a half years. The law was changed in April of 2017, and we're holding this webinar today because today is the day that 130 weeks have now elapsed. So uh, why have we had, had this change to the law? Well, this is something that uh, really has been very necessary and particularly in this jurisdiction. The law was changed to address the failure of physicians and uh, concomitantly, of course, the law judges to ever find that anyone's actually reached maximum medical improvement. There's just an institutional bias in the state uh, where the doctors really never release anyone from treatment. You know, I say that maximum medical improvement in a medical record in New York is like a unicorn. Everybody knows what a unicorn looks like. No one's ever seen a unicorn. The doctors in New York just seem to be extremely biased towards the person always needs more care. They never really release the person. Uh, so so this is to address the claimant's typical tactic, which is to stay on temporary disability benefits forever. 
right? And why wouldn't you want to do that? Uh, the maximum temporary disability rate is pegged to the state average weekly wage, which means it goes up every year, and it's now well over $930 a week. This is a lot of money. Uh, Ten years ago, before the statute was first amended in the first series of reforms that we went through in 2007, implemented in 2010 and 2012, back then the maximum rate was $400 a week, and the indemnity wasn't as big of a fight as it is now. But now, uh, the tactic of staying on temp forever in New York is a classic uh, tactic. It's well used by uh, our adversaries. Now, New York allows you to stay on temp forever. There is no cap on temp, period. Also, this new law does not create a cap on temporary disability benefits. However, the new law says that after 130 weeks, the employer or carrier gets a uh, credit against any permanent residual disability. And the last little bullet point here on this is, yeah, this is still not a cap. It could still stay on temp forever. But uh, the presumption is that after 130 weeks, now that's be running as a credit. So this is good for us. All right. Which cases are affected? When you're looking at your case population, I hope you've already red flagged every case where the date of loss is after April, 7, uh, April 10th, excuse me, 2017. After that date, uh, that's when this applies. Uh, on today, the first cases are eligible because it's now 130 weeks from that date. So those are the cases you should be looking at. Now, of course, this is New York. And they couldn't make this simple. They couldn't make it as clean as it is in the very clearly worded statute. There is what they're calling the safety valve. Uh, that's cute, uh, workers' compensation board. I call it the loophole. And there is a loophole in which this credit will not apply. And in that loophole says, essentially, the claimant can argue that maximum medical improvement actually has not been reached. If the claimant raises that, the parties can either negotiate or litigate this issue. Now, this is going to be important. Uh, because I expect, and we're going to get to this in the next slide or two slides from here, when we talk about how the claimant's going to defeat uh, the, the finding that the credit applies, they're going to do their classic. My doctor says I may need surgery someday. That has been shop-worn uh, workers' comp 101 for claimants since as long as I've been practicing. Every time we get a great IME report uh, and we can say, hey, look, judge, this person has now been treating for 10 years with physical therapy. They're never getting any better, judge. Come on. We know what we should do here. The claimant uh, rolls themselves into the courtroom and goes, but, but judge, I, I know it's been physical therapy for a decade and I've never gotten any better, but my doctor's now saying I may maybe someday need surgery. So uh, that's how they've always defeated a finding of MMI in the past, regardless of whether they actually got the surgery or not. So I'm going to talk about specific strategy for neutralizing that as we go forward. All right. And that strategy is this. Counsel, defense counsel needs to know and keep next to their heart the definition of maximum medical improvement in this state. It is in the regulation, so it is black letter of law with the definition of maximum medical improvement. And that regulation states that, quote, the claimant has recovered from their injury to the greatest extent that is expected, and no further improvements in his or her condition is reasonably expected. All right. Still, it's great to have that definition, but uh, it's been kind of loosey-goosey and hasn't been useful. And in 2013, the board issued guidance, and that guidance uh, was in the form of a subject number saying, hey, uh, you've been defeating these findings of maximum medical improvement by merely alleging that there was maybe going to be surgery someday. Uh, so no, that doesn't work anymore. And there's now guidance that says the mere assertion or allegation of the potential for future surgery or curative treatment is not enough to defeat uh, or defend against a finding of MMI. In other words, the workers' compensation judge does not simply 
uh, should not give credence to the claimant saying, well, maybe someday, maybe there's this care or treatment I should maybe someday get. Now the judge of compensation said, well, just because you're asserting that maybe someday you'll have curative care doesn't mean you will, therefore you have reached MMI. All right, so the defense perspective. What are we actively doing? What should you be actively doing? What's best practice right now, given the status of the law change back in 2017 and the fact that it becomes effective in your cases today? Number one, red flag cases. I hope uh, in your systems, you started to red flag cases uh, occurring after, with a date of loss after April 10, 2017, all the way up to the present. And from now on, this is gonna be our standard operating procedure. You're looking for date of loss after April 10, 2017. Uh, and our first challenges are now possible today. We should be prepared. Your defense counsel should be well armed with the presumptions argument. In my firm, in my office, we've been training on this uh, since July. We've been training the attorneys. We've been looking at cases. We're trying to pick out and red flag the best cases for us to try on this issue. Uh, risk professionals, adjusters, we should be planning out our IME strategy and implementing it now. Uh, we want an IME strategy where at two, 130 weeks, if the claimant has not reached maximum medical improvement and you're still paying them temp in some capacity, you should be out there and I think best practice is to red flag those cases for an IME. Uh, unless you've got cases where it's just so obvious the person's gonna go to permanent total disability, uh, we should be uh, red flagging those cases and getting them ready for an IME. Now, uh, I also wanna mention one other thing here, and this is really more of a tactic than a best practice. It's that right now, nobody knows how this credit's gonna apply or how strictly the uh, courts are gonna apply it or what proofs uh, the judges are gonna consider is are to defeat MMI, despite the fact that there's guidance and regulations on that. So there's a little bit of uncertainty right now. If you're looking at your case population, you've got cases where the claimant has a date of loss after April 10, uh, 2017, and in which they're still on temp, well, those are cases you now have some new leverage in them that you did not have yesterday because 130 weeks have elapsed and you could be making the argument that, hey, yeah, maybe this one is going to go to a loss of wage earning capacity or classification finding. And yeah, claimant's attorney, maybe under best circumstances, $100,000 is going to move. But remember, I'm getting a credit now. So that number is going to be reduced. So maybe you want to settle your case now or resolve it now. And the way I'd be trying to do those would be by way of Section 32 where that's available and appropriate for the case. All right, let's talk about the claimant perspective. Uh, because believe me, uh, opposing counsel on the other side of the fence is coming up with ways uh, that they can exploit what I've called the loophole and what the board calls the safety valve. So clearly they're going to continue to select paternalistic physicians. You know, uh, guys, uh, there's a reason why the claimant's attorneys all send their uh, clients to the same seven doctors, right? And the reason is they know those doctors are never going to find anyone's at MMI and they think that they're building up these great cases. Um, I think we're gonna still see more unnecessary treatment. I also believe that that's gonna be compounded a bit uh, with the uh, new provider expansion, which is saying things like physical therapists and nurse case practitioners and physician's assistants can be writing prescriptions, et cetera. So I think all of those things we have to be very wary of and be on the lookout for. I think uh, we're gonna hear more of the story, uh, this classic move by the claimant where they're telling the judge, when we're in there we're saying credit applies, judge, this credit should apply in this case. I think we're gonna see more and more cases in which the claimant's coming forward and saying, yeah, but maybe someday I'm gonna be a candidate for maybe some surgery. So uh, your defense counsel, 
uh, in the courtroom when that's brought up as a defense to MMI being found needs to be ready and they need to have the case law in their pocket, they need to have the regulation in their pocket, they need to have the board bulletin in their pocket. I'm happy to provide this to anybody who's watching or listening right now uh, so that you're well armed and we're able to walk into this with the best possible argument. Um, uh, the last thing I think they're going to argue about is what if the claimant is working or there's intermittent periods of lost time? I mean, these are the next things that I think our uh, adversaries are going to bring in. I also think that they're going to argue that tentative periods or tentative rates uh, shouldn't count towards as a credit towards the cap because they're going to argue, well, in that period, it was unknown whether the person was MMI or not. You agreed to a tentative rate. In my uh, practice, I counsel clients away from tentative rates uh, just as a matter of course, but now it's even more important that we uh, really be considered uh, or consider the tactical implications of a tentative rate and try to stay away from those as much as you can in your cases. The last thing I'm going to say, and it's not on any of the slides, uh, is that my office is certainly looking for the test cases on these. I am very concerned uh, that whenever the law changes and it appears to be favorable to the employer in New York, uh, our wonderful and lovely uh, judges on the appellate division come up with some reason why this law really doesn't say the things it clearly says in terms of black letter law. Uh, so if yeah, I'm not representing you and you're listening to this webinar and you're listening to it six months from now, one of these cases is coming up, you're listening to the recorded video, I should say, uh, and you have one of these problems, uh, please, 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 uh, communicate with your defense counsel. Let them know that there's arguments out there. We really don't want bad case law to be made on this because this can affect everybody on the employer side. So really picking out and red flagging the best cases to make this argument that the MMI uh, assumption or presumption that's in the statute that after 130 weeks, the claimant is essentially at MMI and that therefore we should be getting a credit, that after two and a half years of them picking their own doctors, choosing anybody they want to go to, they really should be at MMI. After that, something odd's gone on and we're in a strange world and it should be the burden on the claimant to show why they're not at MMI. That's the argument we need to be prepared to forcefully make and back up legally. So please, as you're going through your cases and you're, and you're red flagging them and you're looking at ones to try, uh, these are the moments to communicate with your counsel and say, hey, do you think this is a good one for trial? Do you think this is the one? We don't want to make bad case law on this topic where we have the law in our favor. All right, so uh, I'm standing here. This is completely live. I hope you're watching and enjoying this. I have a great number of people here. Uh, now we have got some questions coming in. Okay, first question has got nothing to do with this. Does your firm handle civil claims? Thank you, yes we do. Uh, I'm looking for uh, questions on, on this topic in particular. Okay, here we go. Looks like we're getting some now. Great. Uh, should the 130-week IME, this is uh, from Mark G, who asked this question, should the 130-week IME just be for MMI or also for permanency? Yeah, hey, you're paying for it. Uh, why not do both, right? Uh, when, and as a matter of course now, that 130-week MMI, two and a half years, the person's still on temp. And, and just we want to infuse a little common sense here, right? In the workers' compensation law in New York, the claimant can go to any doctor they want, choose any facilities they want. The only opportunity we have to really control that is through the medical treatment guidelines, which is really a best practices type of guideline for the uh, practitioners to select. We can control that through the pharmacy management. Uh, we have a new formulary that's going to become effective December 5th, so that's all good. Um, and But we don't have a great opportunity to select physicians. In fact, no opportunity. We can't really influence or affect their 
the physicians that are treating the claimants. Uh, so oftentimes in this jurisdiction, we are using IMEs simply to get a finding of MMI, simply to make the argument, like this person's been in care forever. Now, common sense would tell you that you've been picking your own doctors for two and a half years. Hopefully you're trying to get better. And after two and a half years of treatment, in the real world, people really do get better and move on with their lives. Of course, workers' compensation is considered a retirement program, and so no one ever gets any better. Uh, but yeah, we're oftentimes doing IMEs in New York simply for the purpose of getting a finding of MMI so that we can then just go litigate or resolve the issue of how temporarily partially disabled you are. You're trying to find them anything less than totally disabled. Uh, okay, so that's the thing. And really, I think what Mark G is asking here in this question is, should the IMAG just for the MMI issue, or can you also address permanency at that time? Well, certainly you can address permanency at that time, particularly if your IME physician is finding that the person has reached maximum medical improvement. What a perfect opportunity to also get your uh, classification finding uh, of some kind. Uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be hesitating to combine those two things together. And again, common sense, they've been treating for two and a half years. It is what it is. They're probably not getting much better. Most cases would be amenable to some type of resolution at that time in terms of permanent residual disability. All right, uh, I'm going through here. I don't see any other questions, come on. Uh, we've got a lot of attendees. I'm kind of surprised that there's not a ton more questions. So I'm going to talk for 10 more seconds while I give people a chance to type them in and hit send. And hopefully uh, the questioning uh, box is still working and working correctly. Um, how we're handling these internally is we are absolutely red flagging them. We're giving clients advice about uh, IMEs. My opinion on IMEs in New York is uh, essentially uh, you should be uh, conferring with defense counsel and your risk professional to pick the best IME doctor you can find. I think standard of practice should be that a cover letter should be sent to the IME doctor explaining to the IME doctor exactly what you're looking for. And particularly in a case like this where you're really looking for the IME doctor to give you a strong commentary on maximum medical improvement, not theoretical improvement, not is there a potential for future curative care, maybe someday in the future, uh, you know, really to talk about MMI in this particular context. Uh, and remember those IME cover letters can include anything, including surveillance videos, workplace videos, job descriptions, anything you need to really give the IME physician a very good overall uh, holistic picture of this person. All right, uh, so I don't see any new questions popping up. Hi, Jackie, just saying hi. Uh, yet, uh, but please know that uh, if you have any questions that emerge after we have this uh, webinar close, you can always email me, you can always call me directly. Uh, any of the attorneys in my office are going to be very familiar with this topic because we've been training on it for months. But if you have any questions about that, please feel free to reach out to me or uh, even discussions about particular case level uh, sort of tactics that you want to employ. All right, everybody, have a great week. Uh, I'll see you next time.